A Quick Time Out podcast is presented by Dr. Dish Basketball. Dr. Dish machines are the most advanced shooting machines on the market. If you haven't already, join top programs like the Miami Heat, the Philadelphia 76ers, the Duke Blue Devils, and countless others and upgrade to Dr. Dish Basketball. And now, save an extra $300 on select models when you mention Quick Time Out podcast. To find out more, visit drdishbasketball.com. He's the head men's basketball coach for the Emanuel College Lions and also the director of coach development for PJC Basketball, Coach TJ Rosine. Coach, great to have you on the show. Yeah, Tony, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Coach has a lot of irons in the fire and is always busy doing something for the basketball community and also his community there in North Georgia. Literally an infant amount of things that we could talk with Coach Rosine about today, though. Decided to talk about helping players accept and even define their roles and uh, something that I think is kind of closely related to that is, is shot selection, kind of the practical outcome of some of the things that I'm sure we'll talk about. Uh, Coach, you guys have been in D2 now five years. Is that right? Yeah, I think, yeah, five years. Yep. And three conference titles, right? Right. Yep. Just those five years. And before that, in an NAI school and also an NCCA school, won three national titles and has Coach of the Year honors go along with that. So team building, and I would say, too, like team building at an accelerated rate. Uh, this first question, I could be wrong on this, but I think the question that I'm about to ask you maybe be the first question that we have to answer because depending on how it's answered could actually determine whether or not the kids accept their roles. Is this whole process of, of role acceptance and defining rules, is it more so the responsibility of the players or more so the responsibility of the coaches? Well, I think defining that role is 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 mutual. I mean, I think that players have to earn opportunities, you know, and I think coaches are the ones to decide whether they earn those opportunities. Um, and then I think we carve out roles you know, accordingly. And I think that just like any good team, you know, whether it's business, basketball or whatever, when it's a joint venture, it's always better because you have mutual buy-in, you know, like the players got to believe in their role. I, you know, I'm, I'm not a big top down guy, but I'm also not afraid to make decisions. Sometimes you have to make decisions and you have to tell players where they stand, but I would prefer that we do it together. I'd prefer that we figure this thing out for the best of the team. And that oftentimes means hard conversations and a lot of conversations to get to that spot. And I think that's where it's difficult, where most coaches don't always want to have those conversations. Sometimes it's easier to be transactional and just say, here, do this and do that. So you don't have to go through all of the work to get there. But I actually think the work to get there is what makes the role identification and and, and a team coming together uh, special because you have put in the work and you have gone through some battles and some trials to get to where you're operating, hopefully at, for the best of the team. This was revolutionary to me, and I think it helped me maybe become a little bit more empathetic to players and uh, just see things from their point of view. But I found that the players come in with expectations. I, as the coach, come in with expectations. And when I looked at it from their perspective, I found that like that a lot of times is where the difficulties come is when like the two of those things don't match up. Expectations, whether that's playing time or the number of shots that I can get or anything like that, how do you help those two things, those their expectations and your expectations? How do you help them align faster or better? Yeah, you know, one of the things that we do every year is I print out some of the 
top college teams around the country, men, women's basketball, um, in our conference, uh, D2, like just things that they could relate to, you know, as, as well as like, you know, Duke and UConn women and whatever. And what are they, how many people are they actually playing and how many minutes are they actually playing? I think if, when you dive into that, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty interesting. You know, we've, we've done it in years where, you know, UConn probably had 85% or 90% of their minutes eaten up by six players. And that's really not that unrealistic. I and mean, when you look at some of the top teams in the country, it's usually seven players eat up 80% or more of the minutes. And, you know, occasionally it's eight. Not many people play nine and 10. And even when you look at those minutes, you know, nine and 10 is oftentimes, um, you know, they their minutes went up because you were up by or down by a certain amount and they got to play 14 minutes that game or 12 minutes that game. So that may be even a little bit inflated when you look at end of season numbers. So what we first have is a math problem, right? I mean, we've got X number of players, X number of minutes, and then you put on top of that expectations and it's not a clean problem. It, it is not one plus one equals two. And so you've got to work your way through that, but it's really important to work your way through that so that everybody can be hitting on all cylinders. And, you know, like I said before, a lot of conversations, um, analytics, um, you know, there's a lot of things that go into that to, to determining who goes where. And we like to explain to players, even in the recruiting process, like, look, you know, our top seven guys are going to play a lot of minutes and eight's probably going to be, you know, pretty solid in there in minutes. But beyond that, you know, there's 14 guys on the team, six guys aren't playing very much if at all. And, um, and so they need to know that going in, but most players are going to bet on themselves. Even if you tell a player, Hey, you're number 14, they're betting on themselves to be in the top eight by the end of the summer. That's assuming nobody else works. Nobody else puts in the time. And so that's where you do have to have some really hard conversations and, and tell the truth. And we always try and tell the truth and love and transparency, but you got to tell the truth. You started down this road. So I'll, I'll ask you to just anything that comes to mind, like practical ways of achieving this outside of just simply conversations and preseason meetings to talk about what those expectations might be. Yeah. Well, one of, I mean, so we give them a look at a sheet on, on different players around the country and how much, you know, each team played and number of minutes. And then we have them fill out a sheet too. Who do you think should be the starting point guard? Who do you think should be the starting two guard and how many minutes do you think they should play? And this is one of the most eye-opening things that we do because, first of all, players a lot of times do not have a clue. You know, they'll put, hey, I think so-and-so should play 20 minutes at the five, and so-and-so should play 20 minutes at the five, and so-and-so should play 10, and so-and-so should play five. So before you know it, they got all four or five men playing, and there's only 40 minutes there, and they added up to 65 minutes. And so you got to give them the sheet back and say, wait a second you got to carve out 40 minutes. you got to carve out 25 minutes out of this to get back down to 40. And they're like, oh, shoot, that's tough. And they have a really hard time going through it themselves. So we like to put them in our seat for a second and say, you make these decisions. And they might say, well, gosh, all three of these guys should play at the three. They're all pretty good. They're all pretty decent. So you're telling me that an All-American should only play 18 minutes? That doesn't make sense either. So we just have those lead to good conversations with players. And we don't tell them what their teammate put down, but they say, I've got myself playing 30 minutes of the two. And, you know, on 11 out of 14 people, you're not even getting any minutes. Like it's not just the coaches. There's a disconnect in how you see yourself as well. And we use those as teachable moments, not as prove it wrong moments like, oh, yeah, you were wrong here. Um, because we want them to continue to grow and believe in themselves. But it is is good for conversation to be able to have that kind of stuff down on paper. 
So the minutes is the obvious one in conjunction here with like role acceptance. Mm -hmm. But actually, what happens on the court system wise? How do you get them to accept those roles? You know, I, I, I'm a, a feeling coach. I think some people are kind of like more, you know, structured and maybe even have their substitution patterns down or what. I'm more of a feel coach, but I also do think that it helps to have numbers to back that up. And I think every year we've charted more and more stuff to help with that. One of the things I really like is our preseason shooting ladder that we do. And we have a series. We try and pick our fav favorite five drills that we do in shooting. And any of those drills could be a number of makes in a certain amount of time or a number of minutes and seconds to get a particular thing done. And they're charting. There's some way that they're going to rank. And we take um, – that shooting chart and we have the five different drills that we do and we try and do all of them three times before we actually start the ladder. But when we get that down, you know, you're third in this, you're second in this, you're first in this. So it equates to you being number two on the shooting ladder and our shooting ladder over time, we've worked it out to a place where it's pretty darn accurate. And, and so when a guy says, I think I should be shooting this, but you're number 11 on the shooting chart, um, and I and I think you can do that. I mean, it took us a little bit of trial and error to be like, well, this drill doesn't really give us an accurate number. This drill does give us an accurate number. Um, but, you know, every single year for the last you know seven or eight years, you know, our top three shooters are getting the most of of the shots, at least perimeter shots, at least. And I think that really helps us to, to create some separation as well. You know, I think of even, you know, the freshman, maybe a transfer player that comes in. And you're trying to just teach them your system of play, both mm -hmm. sides of the floor, offense or defense. I think all of us have had that player where they come in and they haven't been to many practices and you start playing, whether that's full court or just within the game. And some version of what are they doing comes to, comes to mind. Yeah. How do you get that player to understand what you're trying to do big picture? Yeah. Well, I think – one, helping them see what they're not doing that fits into your system. I think film is really helpful there and just showing them. And, and sometimes when you show it to them, they close the gap really fast. And then sometimes it's something they can't close the gap on, but it's also uh, helps them to understand where the gap is to be able to get on to the floor. And, you know, we we're a little bit different in this where I think we morph a little bit offensively every year based on personnel. I'm, I know everybody's different. I think high school coaches could probably relate to what I'm saying here is, you know, your team changes from year to year. And so we don't just stick with what we do because, you know, we try and get the best available player. We're not picking and choosing the best players. And so you know, this year we might have two good post players. Next year we might have no good post players. And so that's going to change a little bit. And you've also got to resell roles when your system changes a little bit. And so I think that helping them to see it on film, um, helping them to understand um, how they can be successful. I think casting a vision for players is important. Listen, I don't think you can be this guy, but I think you can be this guy. And here's how you can get there. I think most players like to think or like to believe or like to know that you, you see them with some sort of opportunity. And occasionally there's a player that I don't see with an opportunity. And I always err on the side of truth. Hey, listen, barring a miracle, I don't know that you are ever going to play. So we have to make a decision. Can you be a world-class teammate and excited about showing up every day if you never play? Mm -hmm. And I think that's a fair conversation to have with players, especially at the end of the year, 
Um, and, and honestly, most of the time they're like, yes, I, I can do that. And then you get into the third week of practice and then they realize they're not playing. And then you go back to that conversation. But if you never had that conversation, you don't have anything to lean back on. And so I think those conversations are important too. And so it's part of like, where do I fit within the culture? Where do I fit in the role of, of uh, playing time? How can I use my strengths within this offense? What can I bring to the defensive end that might help this team? Um, and, I, and I think all of those things, that's why it's not just a uh, uh, down the line, do this, this, and this, because you have to, as coach, that's where you earn your money, make decisions on, does this outweigh this? You know, this player might not shoot it as well, but they're a winner. Does that outweigh shooting for you? And we're all going to make different decisions when it comes to that. Every play, every stat, every breakdown, on their own, they're essential, but altogether, they're undeniable. Introducing Huddle Instat, a new advanced data platform that integrates with sports code and every Huddle product you rely on to create an all-in-one data powerhouse. Huddle Instat's advantage tagging and next-level stat reports help you develop your team, and its global film library helps you find the missing pieces to get the most out of every second of film. Learn more at huddle.com slash a quick timeout. A big thanks to 323 Sports for supporting the show. The guys with 323 Sports are a team dealer providing uniforms, gear, equipment, and more to schools and colleges across the country. I've used them on multiple occasions, and their customer service and low prices are second to none. To find out more, visit 323sports.com, or you can reach out directly to a rep at sales at 323sports.com. They'll be sure to do it right for your sports program. You and I were talking beforehand. I had the opportunity this year to to serve as a head coach and, you know, thinking about things that you don't necessarily always think about as an assistant. And and one of those things was my culture as a program and what that really looks like, even in the aspect of like how we play on the court or who we are. And what does your culture there at Emmanuel do in regards to this topic of the role of each individual player? Yeah, well, I think every player needs to, to feel valued and have an opportunity to add value to the team. And so I think it's a disconnect when when some coaches be like, hey, you're on the end of the bench, you know, just wave your towel and cheer because that's your job, right? But it, I think as coaches, we have to go beyond that and define why that is valuable for the team. And, and if we as a coach don't believe there's any value in that, then the player is going to recognize you don't see any value in that. And so I, you know, I think it's important from your best player down to the last player that they all know that this team is less than without them. We had end of the year meetings and we had one player that I had the meeting with at the end of the year and said, Hey, um, I don't think you're going to play next year. Do you still want to do this? And they said, absolutely. And then we're a month in and they were frustrated. And then we went back to that conversation and they did good for a week or two. I think coaches can relate to this. And then they went back and then we had one more and then he flipped the switch. And for the rest of the year, he competed his butt off in, in practice and he was a great teammate. And I don't think we're a conference champion without him because he was one of the best teammates I've ever seen on the end of the bench. He also had an opportunity to take our team the other direction, you know, and, and I think celebrating that. And on a regular basis, letting the team know that you value that helps with role identification, helps with the buy into roles. And, you know, each player, whether they love or hate their role, if they can at least believe they're adding value to the team, I think they can show up every day and do a good job.
I talked to Graham, your assistant, who's also been on the, the show, but I talked to Graham and you know, he was like, you know, we kind of going through a tough, when I talked to him, it was kind of towards the middle. We're kind of going through a tough part here, but you know, it's kind of starting to maybe turn things around or whatever. What does it take for that kind of thing to happen? Yeah. You know, three things. And so we went on a 16 game win streak when we were seven and seven and, you know, three things. And if you look back at uh, my career, um, our second half of the season record is really good. And our first half of the season record is just pretty good. It's average, you know, but we, we, we tend. And so me and Graham constantly try to figure out why is that we do that. And I think we've landed on three things that have been really good for us. You know, one is I don't think we ever stop getting better. I don't think we ever stop pursuing growth in our culture, pursuing growth in our systems and strategies and pursuing growth in our player development. And so, uh, you know, those three things we are constantly getting better as the year goes on, no matter how we feel, we can feel down, we can feel excited, we can feel whatever, we're, we're just going to keep getting better. And I think we have built a culture that 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 believes that we're just going to keep getting better and we're committed to getting better. So I think that is a really big one. I think the other two are the two that we're talking about. I think as the year goes on, um, shot selection, better understanding of what shot is good for the team versus what shot's just good for you. And I, I think we stay with that throughout the course of the year. And as the year goes on, our shot selection gets better and better. And the more we do a good job of taking care of the ball, and I, I really believe this, in equaling out possessions, that the team that takes the best shots is going to win the majority of the games. And so we really sell that hard, and we really work on taking better shots as the year goes on. Sometimes that's shot generation. Sometimes that's as coaches. We have to figure out how to generate better shots for our team. Sometimes it's the player just choosing not to take a good shot. And so we got to work through that all the way. And so I think really – the commitment to getting better, I think our shot selection, and then three, I think really hammering down the one that we were just talking about is roles, everybody being fully bought into their roles, and us as coaches having a clearer vision at some point about middle of the season on what is everybody's role, you know, and and not just who won the shooting ladder, but how does this lineup play good together? Um, you know, we, we went in with, the other thing, this is kind of a bonus, like, we're not afraid to say we messed up, you know? And so we, we had some preconceived ideas of things we thought would be good and realized that maybe that's not good. And we'll punt that and, and we'll, we'll change because it, we made a mistake as coaches. But I think when we get everybody down there, even coaches in their roles, I think that's really important. And they, our coaching staff, we had three student assistants this year that were phenomenal and they, they killed their role. And some people wouldn't see that as the most valuable role. I thought they were huge. I think they were instrumental in, in, in what we did because they filled their roles so well. But when everybody on the boat has their job, their role, and they are knocking it out of the park, good things are going to happen. And so those three things, you know, got clicking at the same time. And I think that allows us to put together some good runs the second half. You mentioned the ability to continue to get better. Is it safe to say that there's an environment there that allows not just a pursuit of getting better, but also allows for people to continue to develop? I just feel like sometimes with coaches, we determine who a kid is the first month of practice. And then there's almost that self-fulfilling prophecy of that kid is that for the rest of the year. Hopefully, maybe next year they'll get better. Yeah, honestly, I think this may sound a little harsh. I think it's lack of humility on the coach's part because I've done this long enough to know that I was wrong a bunch of times 
I mean, how many kids have we signed that I thought were going to be good that didn't turn out to be that good? And how many kids have I signed that I didn't think were going to be that good that turned out to be really good? Mm-hmm. You know, and how many players just needed an opportunity and how many players just needed to blossom a little bit? How many players just needed to grow their confidence a little bit and everything would change and everything would shift. So I think I'm really open to the opportunity that we can all grow and all get better because I've screwed up so many times and seen so many people get better. And I think it goes back to that old, you know, Google study of like what makes for a good environment and good teams, like a place that's safe to fail. And I I think that we celebrate failure here uh, because, you know, if people are going out and failing, they're trying things that they can't do, which means we all are going to get better. Now, we don't want that to happen in games. There's a difference between like, what can I go into the game? I'm not experimenting in the game. I'm trying to do what I do best. But in practice and individual workouts, we want you to fail. And the more you fail, the more you're going to see the opportunities. Now, players have to have humility, too. Like, they have to recognize when I do fail, it's okay to fail. Now, what am I going to do about this? How am I going to grow? How am I not going to fail that same way over and over again? But you do have to have an environment that is built for growth. I think a lot of times, like you are like you said, I think as coaches, we can have uh, you know times where we're pretty closed-minded and we just know how we want things to be. And then people can't grow and teams can't grow. And, and you know, you're probably going to tap out a lot earlier than you need to in a tournament game. Aside from the winning, like we had, a, we ended up winning the conference tournament or does anything come to mind as in positive outcomes as a result of coaching this way? Yeah. You know, I think one is um, when you look at uh, the, the long term of a person as a player or a coach, um, those that believe they have arrived are in trouble, right? And, and, and those that see limits to where they can go are also in trouble. And so producing that, I think an environment where growth is celebrated, where growth is loved, I think pays dividends in their future as well. Um, because when you know that you have room to grow, it, it, uh, it allows you to celebrate when you move forward and it allows you not to live in the past when you make a mistake. And that is life, right? I mean, that is that is parenting, that is marriage, that is, I mean, you name it. Like that is it just it's part of the journey. And so, I, you know, I and even with my own kids, you know, I have one of my children that sees failure as fatal, and we're working through that. You know, like it's okay, right? And then, you know, another one that's not afraid to fail at anything, and they'll just go after it, and you know, sometimes not even recognize that that, that they're doing the same thing over and over again. That's my kids are just like anybody else's kids, right? Like there's growth and, and it's not whether you, uh, it's really how you handle that. And I think that if you can't handle uh, failure well, if you can't handle, you know, growth, if you can't, if you can't do those, you're not going to handle them in life well either. And I think that's important to us in our program and, and players moving forward. I'll circle back and ask about this just because I promised it to the people, but the, the shot selection, because I think that's probably the most tangible thing connected to all of this, that, that we relate to it. For some reason, we we determine if a team is a selfish team or a team that loves each other and how they share it and the result of whether or not the ball goes through the basket at the end. You know, you've talked about the latter. I'm sure some of the other drills when you just said we do some other drills, coaches will want to hear about that. Uh, but anything like that that comes to mind in regards to the connection to role acceptance and then also mm-hmm. practical nitty gritty. If you want to describe a drill, you can get that detailed if you want to as well. Yeah, yeah, I'll I'll, uh, I'll definitely, um, you know, this really came to light for me a long time ago when I was here in um, one of our PGC sessions, when I first started with PGC, you know, a dozen years ago, 
And in our PGC course, we were giving the shot selection talk. I heard Dina and Mono both give the shot selection talk. And it, I thought it was just really, really powerful. And, you know, basically it was the quick of it is that there's a scale on one to 10 and um, eliminate evens because everyone likes indecisiveness. So you're either going to shoot a one, three, five, seven, or nine. And at the end of the day, sevens win games and sevens were in range, in rhythm with room. And so we all have players that go shoot a shot. They might be wide open at the three point line, but it's not in their range. So it didn't have those three components. Right. And so we determine everybody's range. Right. And then we want shots to come within rhythm, within the offense, feet set, you know, that kind of stuff. And, and we want to make sure that all three of those R's are coming together in place. And then if we go evaluate the shots and, you know, only two of those R's are alive, it's a five. And I don't really think players are all that selfish. I just think that they just shoot a ton of fives. And fives don't win you games. Sevens win you games. It was in your range, in rhythm, and you had room. And if you can shoot a high percentage of those, you're going to make a high percentage of those. And we don't even hunt nines because we say nines – are really a byproduct of a breakdown. Let's just say you get a steal and a breakaway. You're going to get a breakaway layup. That's a nine. But that was because your defense created something or somebody turned something over. Or let's say you ran a backdoor and the defense got lost. Well, that's great. You're going to get a nine. But the best teams aren't going to give you a nine 15 times a game. They're only going to give you one or two, you know. And so you just need to shoot sevens over and over again. But if you were to walk in the gym and your players, your guys, your girls are playing basketball today, and you just watch that, you know what you're going to see? You're going to see about 75% fives. You're going to see, you know, yeah, it was in their range. And, you know, it, it, they um, they caught it in rhythm, but there was no room. They were closely guarded. Or it wasn't in their range. Even though they were wide open and they had rhythm, it wasn't in their range. Just take one of those away. And 75 80% of the shots that are going to go up are fives. And that's just basing your game a lot on hope. Um, and that has something to do with the defense too. You know, we've shot in fives in a lot in games where I thought we shot too many fives, but some of that's the defense, you know, there's only 30 seconds on the shot clock and they did a good job and we need to generate better shots for our team. And, uh, but we feel, um, in, in nitty gritty, you know, when answers one great way we do is we watch film, we take 10 clips and we have the players rate it. And we say, go stand in this corner. If you think it was a seven, go stand in that corner. If you think it was five, go stand in that corner. If you're three, it's really interesting. One, you have to get everybody on the same page and players have to learn what you rate as a seven, five, three, nine or one or whatever. They've got to learn that everyone's got to speak the same language. So we do some film practice to where eventually we get to 10 shots and 90 percent of the time we all agreed on whether it's a seven, five or a three. Now we're speaking the same language in practice. Um, one of my favorite drills that we do is uh, uh, seven and keep it. So you're on offense as long as you shoot a seven, we're not attached to whether you make it or miss it. You play offense as long as you shoot a seven. And so we're not attached to whether the ball went in or not. We're attached to the quality of the shot. Um, another game that we play sometimes to a hundred that I really like is, you know, all officiate or Graham will officiate the game and the shot goes up. And if our hand goes up, that means it was a seven. So if they shoot it, they get seven points. And if they make it, let's say they shoot a seven, that's a three. They just made a 10 pointer. Now, if somebody goes down there and they make five tough turnarounds in a row, that will equal 10 points when one person could have got that on one shot by shooting a seven and making a three. And so you're rewarded for the quality of your shot. You know, we say this NATO not attached to outcome. 
too many times players are attached if a shot went in even you know, it's kind of like golf right like one out of every 20 shots i hit good and i remember that but i took 19 crappy ones you know and a player's gonna have that same memory too they hit a fadeaway falling down or whatever and they're like oh yeah i'm really good at this but then you go back and chart it and they're 19 percent from that and so we try to get them attached to the quality of the shot not whether it goes in or not that's great is the sevens just a five on five full court yeah, it, we, we do it both half and full, but I like it when we were going full and they're playing a regular game and, you know, they're just trying to take good shots. Now they want to make them, but they're just trying to take good shots. And, you know, you can quickly, wow, before you know it, we're, we played five minutes and we got 100 points because we just take quality shots. And uh, I, I think it's I think it sends the message that connects the dots for them. As expected, so much great stuff. Coach TJ Rosine, thanks so much for working with me to make it happen. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Tony, for what you do and sharing the game. I really appreciate that.